This week's TribCast is sponsored by the Central Texas Regional Mobility Authority implements innovative and sustainable transportation solutions to enhance quality of life and economic vitality in Central Texas. Learn more at mobilityauthority.com. And Fairmont Austin. Experience downtown luxury at Fairmont Austin with exclusive rates and long-term stay offers for government employees. For more information, visit fairmontaustin.com. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for uh, December. Oh man, the the months are flying by (laughs) for February 12th, 2021. Uh, My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Texas Tribune. This week I am joined by higher education reporter Kate McGee. Hey, happy to be here. And uh, health reporter Karen Brooks-Harper. Hello, Matthew and everybody else. ah, Hello. And energy and economy reporter Mitchell Furman. Hey there. Hi. So before we begin, let's all rise and sing the national uh-huh. anthem. It's <laughs> <laughs> a little Texas politics joke. We're actually not going to talk about the fight over the Dallas Mavericks and the national anthem today because there's been a lot of other stuff that's going on this week. Um, Our podcast is delayed this week, largely because of the onslaught of news. We were planning to record first on Wednesday. That got bumped. Then on Thursday, but that got bumped by the news item that we are about to talk about right now. It's been weeks, months even, since uh, Attorney General Ken Paxton's top aides came out publicly and accused him of essentially bribery. But during that time, we have not really had a great sense of what exactly the basis of that accusation was, what it was that those aides believed that he did. On Thursday, Kate, you were involved in kind of breaking the story of, 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 of new details of the allegations against Ken Paxton that have prompted a criminal investigation. Can you tell us a little bit about what has happened in that case and, and, and what we've learned this week? Sure. So um, this week, the lawyers for the whistleblowers filed two things. One was a response to Paxton's lawyers' um, calls to dismiss the lawsuit straight out. Um, And the second thing that they filed was an amended lawsuit with a lot more details as to why and um, what, what the whistleblowers think with some motivations behind Paxton acting illegally and uh, and abusing his um, office. They showed, or they said in the lawsuit that there's been this kind of murky relationship between Paxton and Austin real estate developer, Nate Paul. Um, And they said in the lawsuit that, you know, Paul Paxton rather had been acting above and beyond his duty in unusual and proper ways to kind of help uh, Paul with his business interests. And they and this new filing shows that in return, Paxton was getting um, help with a remodel on his house. And uh, possibly they're alleging that uh, Nate Paul was helping uh, and hired a woman that Paxton was having an affair with. So they get kind of just provided more details as to what was going on between Nate Paul and Ken Paxton that 
gave reason to why Paxton was um, acting so uh, improperly and allegedly illegally. Sure. And, and, you know, the way this story kind of developed in the fall was we first had news that um, a lot of these uh, employees had, had notified Ken Paxton that they were going to the criminal authorities, but we didn't really even know why. Then after that, you know, the, the relationship with uh, Nate Paul came into attention and there were allegations that he had helped Nate Paul, as you said, in various ways, including hiring a special prosecutor to look into other law enforcement officers who had been investigating and searching his house uh, due to a, a criminal investigation that was going on. And then also, you know, some of his staff members had seemed to raise concerns that there was, um, that basically Paxson was using the office to um, help Nate Paul in, in some civil litigation as well. But right, the, the big question was, what did they think Ken Paxton was getting in return, you know? And I think, you know, we should note that, uh, you know, what was laid out in these filings uh, this week was, uh, you know, their suspicion. You know, they right. did not provide proof in this suit. Um, they, they didn't lay out what they knew. You know, they said that they, they, they knew that Ken Paxton's house was being renovated, but they didn't you know, say, say how they knew that or, or how they knew that Nate Paul's company was involved in that renovation, right? Right, yeah, and even they said, you know, they looked through Travis County, um, like house permitting documents and they couldn't find anything. So a lot of it seems to be things that these whistleblowers had learned through conversations or, you know, just day-to-day -day activity, um, but there's really no, there's a lot of, um, still questions as to how they, they learned this information that they're now alleging. Sorry. What, what kind of response did y'all get from, from Ken Paxton yesterday when you read the story? It was pretty standard for what he's been saying since this lawsuit has, fi has been filed. He said he's done nothing wrong. That would be proven in court. Um, you know, there's a hearing in this, uh, in this lawsuit on the 16th of February next week. So that will be, you know, the next step in this. Um, but really just he had been kind of painting these whistleblowers as, you know, rogue employees, really uh, smearing them um, since they filed this lawsuit and kind of continue to do so yesterday. Sure. And, you know, this has been kind of what he's been saying all along, right, that these employees, as you said, were rogue, that they... Um, you know, that he fired some of them for, for things that they were doing. Um, but it's important to kind of note that these are really, I mean, these are Ken Paxton's top deputies. Practically his whole kind of executive level staff has left or been fired in recent months, uh, weeks, um, in the fallout of this. And, you know, it raises questions, even if he is innocent of these charges, you know, kind of what was going on in that office and how is he running that office that uh, he had all these kind of rogue employees, if, if that is indeed the case, as he says. You know, one thing that we saw this week also was Ken Paxton going before the Senate Finance Committee, and he really got grilled by the senators there. And I, I was uh, I was very interested in that and watched a little bit of it and saw you know, they were pretty upset with him for a lot of different reasons. You know, one thing the attorney general's office has been doing uh, during this time that he has been the uh, under this cloud of suspicion and allegations is uh, pursuing a uh, antitrust lawsuit against Google. 
And, you know, a lot of the senators on Senate finance noting that, you know, it's not great to have your top staffers uh, all leave in the middle of this major lawsuit, especially against an opponent that has the resources to spend millions, if not more, of dollars in its defense here. Uh, they were also concerned about the extra money that uh, that that was having to be spent uh, both on staff raises, which which the senators had alleged was was not approved by them, and also on outside counsel to help with this Google lawsuit after um, after after all this turnover in the staff. So, I mean, this is just another kind of piece of turmoil. Then, of course, you also have the. Paxson's involvement in attempting to overturn the election results. It's, it's really just been a kind of a, a wild quarter of a year for, for that office, a really important office in the state. Absolutely. Sure. So you, what happens next? You, you mentioned that there is a, a hearing on the 16th. I mean, are we getting any closer to knowing how this is going to get resolved? I think it kind of remains to be seen what happens on the 16th. Uh, and how the court decides what to do with, um, you know, we mentioned this other filing that happened. Ken Paxton had argued um, in his response to the lawsuit that he uh, could not, did not qualify as a public employee because he's an elected official. And so was arguing that, you know, he shouldn't have to sit for deposition and be questioned, um, which the whistleblowers obviously had wanted him to do. Um, and they have they responded and rebuked that, you know, pretty forcefully this week. Um, so we'll see where that all lands with a judge. We don't know what judge um, they'll be sitting in front of yet. So that also remains to be seen. And uh, hopefully, you know, next week we'll see, you know, more answers and how this how this goes. For sure. And of course, Ken Paxton, if, if nothing else, is a survivor. He's been under felony indictment on other charges, securities fraud charges, for almost the entire time he's been in that elected office. So, right. And still got reelected. So that, it seems like he's, uh, you know, keeps standing up. That's right. That's right. Okay. So I want to shift to our next topic here. And that is um, the, the topic that has been right at the top of the news for for almost a year now, the, the coronavirus. This week, Texas dipped under 9,000 people hospitalized for the first time since December. We've seen case totals, deaths, daily deaths, daily, daily case totals, hospitalizations tick down pretty consistently for several weeks now. We had Governor Greg Abbott mention today that his office is starting to kind of explore options to ease some restrictions if we see these trends continue and, and they can continue to vaccinate people and, and, and get into a better phase of this. Karen, you've been watching this for us. What, what are you seeing in the data so far? Well, all the numbers, but the doses are going down, right? So you've, you've the Texas vaccinated um, more than 900, or I should say administered more than 900,000 doses in the last week in Texas. Um, which shows us that we're that they're picking up the pace. Now the numbers going down um, are not directly attributed to that yet. They're still too small a number. Mainly, it's part of that, and it's people being careful, and it's the you know over the end of the holiday um, surge. You know, so there's a number of reasons everything's going down, but um, but it's definitely going down. You know, uh, I don't know. I mean. 
I, I'm not under the impression there's a bunch of restrictions the governor's placed on us anyway. So <laughs> I'm not sure how much life is going to change on the state level anytime soon. But I, I know, I mean, at least here in Austin, they've gone back to, you know, they dropped a stage in restrictions. I know, you know, in Hayes County close by, they did that a few weeks ago. So that stuff's all happening. Yeah. I mean, we're still, we're still at levels higher or right at now um, our summer peak. So we need to keep that perspective in mind that we're not anywhere close to where we were in say October when the numbers were really low ish. So we've got, we got a ways to go yet. Definitely. And uh, yeah, you, you note that. And then, you know, I, I've heard some some public health folks talk about, you know, we just had the Super Bowl. We have these various these new variants of the the strains that could possibly be more um, yeah. contagious and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, one of the big messages, right, is we're definitely not out of the woods here. Yeah, the variants and the Super Bowl, the Super Bowl will know in another week or two if it had any major effect. It doesn't seem to be. It, we saw, you know, it doesn't seem to be yet, but it's only a week. I mean, less than that. So. Uh, it usually takes a couple of weeks for that to kick in. Um, we'll see, but I think the bigger the bigger fear, honestly, by a lot of these people is the variants, just because they're so contagious and possibly, you know, potentially more severe. Um, so the race is on, really, just to to keep that from taking hold and giving us another surge. For like sure. That. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that they're combating, not just the violent or not just the violence, not just the virus. Um, but also, you know, vaccine hesitancy, right? The, the only yeah. way we can get to surge immunity is if, is if we can convince enough people that this vaccine is safe. You know, the data shows that it is and that it is largely effective, but there are people who have concerns about that. You wrote a little bit about the efforts to educate people about that situation. Can you talk a little bit about what the state is doing to, to help with that? Yeah, they've uh, they've got you know 2.3 million budgeted for a public awareness campaign. They've been doing public awareness campaigns around you know social distancing and, and that kind of thing um, throughout the pandemic. But now they're about to turn their focus, and they already kind of have turned their focus uh, towards um, assuring people that the vaccine is safe and efficient, which it is. I mean, sorry, safe and effective, which it is. Um, experts agree anyway, um, and uh, and. Um, basically just kind of trying to, to target the message that uh, not only do we do it for ourselves and our families and our communities, you know, we do it for the, to end the pandemic. And what worries a lot of officials, especially those in areas with large communities of color and in rural areas, both of which are demographics that tend to be more hesitant for a variety of reasons, um, they fear they're not going to be able to get to that 75 to 90 percent vaccinated herd or immunized herd immunity number uh, without them, which makes sense because at least right now, 25-ish percent of Texas population is under the age of 18, most of whom can't take a vaccine. So right there, you've got to vaccinate 100 percent of Texas adults. And I mean, that's not possible just given the limitations of some people's ability to take any vaccine not to mention a 40% hesitancy rate, which some places are seeing, or even more so. I mean, I think I read recently, I know I read recently, Greg County, one of the rural counties in Texas, has a 53% acceptance rate of the vaccine. So um, you'll see their campaign ramp up uh, a lot as more supplies happen. Um, Biden had a big national campaign he was planning. They put it on hold because they worry that, um, 
getting getting people too excited about the vaccine too quick is just going to breed more frustration. There are lots of counterpoints to that, and a lot of people that don't agree with that approach. But uh, that's that's where we stand. Sure. So you'll see more from them in the coming weeks and months, I think. Sure. Well, yeah, let's talk about the quickly kind of the, the different groups that are eligible and things like that, right? We're still in the 1B section, right? Which is, you know, 1A was healthcare workers who are still eligible if they haven't received it, I guess. And then 1B is people over 65 and with, with medical conditions that could put them at risk in some way of this. You, um, you have reported that some 1.2 million Texans over 65 have gotten their first dose. Um, that was about one of one in three of that age group. Um, how how close are we? You know, do we have any kind of sense as to when the state is going to think about opening it up again? Are we still a pretty far ways out from from doing that? This focus is still pretty much in that at risk group. Yeah, the focus is still on that at risk group, and that's mainly because there's still there's still just so few vaccines available. So, I mean, Texas has administered you know three point seven million doses if you count first and second doses. It's that's uh, today we're going to hit a million people in Texas fully vaccinated with both doses, which is a, which is a milestone we were at. Yeah, but um, but what that means is uh, is that. 1B is still uh, is still being taken care of because there's 8.9 million people in 1B. There's one, I mean, sorry, 8 million people in 1B. There's 1.9 million people in 1A. There's some overlap there. Um, so the healthcare workers are still getting in line. The people over 65 and the medical conditions are still getting in line. They're talking to us about uh, maybe another month, you know, maybe a couple months. But it's so dependent on the supply because the supply has just started ramping up a lot. And the logistics it takes about 15 minutes to vaccinate each person to 20 minutes when you think about administering the shot, filling out the paperwork, making them wait around for 15 minutes to make sure there's no. So you can't, it's, it's not necessarily a, a, a quick process. We have to have, uh, you, have, you have to be efficient at it um, in order to do that. So, I mean, springtime is when they're kind of playing around with it, but they haven't given us any official timeline. They are, however, finally, um, starting the discussion on who gets in next, if they even need to. I think their big hope is that they flood the zone with vaccine and it's not even an issue anymore, you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Do, do we know, do we have any sense as to, you know, what, what that group might look like? You said they're trying to figure it out. Have they, have they kind of tipped their hand yet? Uh, a little bit, you know, they're, uh, they're discussing, of course, teachers. I think teachers will be in one C. Um, you know, they're talking about, um, I think they're talking, I think they're talking about essential workers and people like that, but it gets real complicated real fast, you know, because then, you know, there's a couple obvious ones, you know, teachers, um, but how, how, how far do you parse it down? This is just kind of the, this is a communication I get from people in the discussions off, you know, kind of on background I talk to. Um, they're like, well, how far do you get down? How do you decide that grocery workers are more essential than transportation workers? You know, and we're talking about transportation workers. Are you going to involve Uber and Lyft drivers? You know, and, yep. and um, you know, what about, you know, what about retail to get the economy back? Where do you, so I think they're, I, I mean, I think the problem would be solved if the, if the supply comes in in such a great amount that they don't have to prioritize anybody anymore, you know? Mm -hmm. 
But I mean, well, you know, we run out of flu vaccine quite often every year. Um, I've had to wait for my flu vaccine every year. And the flu vaccine, which is, by the way, 40 to 60 percent effective as opposed to the, the uh, Pfizer and Moderna, which are in the 90s. Um, and Johnson and Johnson, which is about to be approved probably by the first of March. Um, it will probably start shipping by the first of March if the timelines hold and nothing goes wrong. Johnson and Johnson single dose will start shipping, um, and that's in the seventies. Um, so you know, not to get off on a tangent here, but it's, it's exciting news just for scientific reasons to hear that there's a Johnson, you know, the Janssen Biotech Johnson and Johnson single dose shot that's going to could be approved by March first, which could change the game entirely. And I think that's one of the reasons they're not committing to a date on one C because. I mean, the doses go up every week. We're getting 80,000 for the pharmacies this week. We're getting 400,000 for first doses next week. We're going to be getting 70,000 doses a week additional for the FEMA sites. Um, so, yeah. You know, so it sounds like what we're seeing is progress in, in terms of increased supply, but it's, it's, it's still going to be a while till we get to the point that, that we want to be. Yeah, I think Biden's been saying logistically the doses will be available, you know, in spring or, or you know April. I think is what Fauci said. But logistically, getting everybody in to get their shot could take past the summertime. So we've still got a slog ahead of us. All right. Well, let's take a, a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be back to talk to Mitchell. This week's Tribcast is sponsored by the Jack Brooks Foundation. The Jack Brooks Foundation Leadership Award is recognizing nonpartisan leaders in the 2020 election. Visit jackbrooksfoundation.org to submit your nominee. And Lone Star College. Lone Star College provides affordable, world-class education and contributes nearly $3 billion to our local economy. Learn more at lonestar.edu. All right, so we are coming up on a month in the administration of Joe Biden, his, the Joe Biden administration. And it's been an eventful month in a whole lot of different areas, uh, not least of which being the energy field and, and environmental as well. Joe Biden has taken on a lot of different actions and, and stated a lot of different intentions about what he wants to do to fight climate change and energy policy and things like that. And his brought out a lot of different reactions from Texas politicians as well. Mitchell, can you talk to us a little bit about what we're seeing, the conversation around energy and, and Biden's energy policy right now in, in Texas? Yeah, so, so President Biden's agenda is very climate focused and Texas lawmakers have taken aim at that, at that agenda. Um, there, a lot of Texas lawmakers have criticized Biden for, you know, destroying oil and gas jobs already by his executive actions he's taken on, you know, various climate related issues or energy related issues um, Two that Texas lawmakers have zeroed in on uh, have been the Keystone Pipeline, uh, the cancellation of that contract by the Biden administration, uh, which is the Keystone Pipeline is a series of pipelines that extend start in Canada and they extend into the United States. And one part of that pipeline has already been built through East Texas. Um, the part, the, the contract that the Biden administration yanked uh, involves a series of pipelines from Canada to Nebraska. Um, so there isn't uh, a, a Texas component that is 
to be built that is already done. Um, so that experts were kind of uh, that I talked to f in, in reporting were were confused at over the, you know the the rhetoric from Texas lawmakers um, criticizing Biden for yanking that pipeline. Um, one expert told me that it affects virtually no employment in Texas. Um, and then the other uh, action that Biden took that uh, Texas lawmakers have, you know, have, have criticized was uh, drilling on federal lands, um, you know, drill, extracting oil, uh, fossil fuels on, on federal lands. And Texas has virtually no federal land um, that is drilled on. Uh, it, that, that action affects other states, though, you know, New Mexico, Wyoming, and you know states where there's a lot of a lot of fossil fuel extraction on federal land, and that you know the taxes from that from those kinds of um, from drilling on those sites contributes a lot to to state coffers and to you know funding public education and and things like that. But in Texas, that is not really happening. Um, so you know the the actions. Um, one one expert I talked to, Michael Weber from uh, he's an energy professor at at the University of Texas at Austin, and he said Biden's actions actually help the Texas oil and gas industry. You know, this is, it's an interesting thing because it is unquestionable that politicians in this state have, have seen this as an issue that they think hits home, right? And, and that even goes back to the presidential election, right? Uh, in, in the last debate, I believe, Joe Biden said something about, you know, banning fracking or uh, limiting fracking and things like that. And, and Texas politicians immediately jumped on that late in the race. And you saw, of course, um, particularly in areas around the border and other areas where, um, where there are a lot of kind of oil workers, oil industry, energy industry workers, a feeling that that might have moved the needle a little bit, and 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 so you know this this could be a situation where you know the policies that you mentioned have little impact on Texas, but the idea of Biden being you know as Republicans would like to paint him you know anti energy industry or or uninterested or unconcerned about you know energy jobs in Texas you know, might have a political impact. That seems to be the, the calculus that they're taking, right? That's what it seems like. And, and um, one, one uh, expert we quoted in our, our story about this, Katie Menert, um, she, you know, there's a line in the story about how, you know, over the last decade, the percentage of jobs that are in the oil and gas industry has steadily declined both in Texas and nationwide. And, you know, she she shared that line on Twitter after the story ran and she said anything else is a politician looking for a vote or a buck. And, you know, four Texas Democrats in Congress did send a letter um, to the Biden administration criticizing, um, you know, a little bit of the, the energy moves. Uh, it was a bit of a soft criticism, but uh, but three of the Democrats who signed on to that letter are part of um, a national, you know, a national Republican effort to target and, you know, to try to flip those those seats. Um, so there is, you know, some of these uh, office holders in Texas are trying to walk a bit of a, a fine line. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, important to note, right, that 
as you say, this some of this has been sort of bipartisan criticism. And there are, of course, Democrats in Texas who support the moves that Biden is making and, and, and environmentally focused folks. Um, but but as you said, these some of these Democrats in Congress, you know, you've got Lizzie Panel Fletcher in Houston, obviously a lot of energy workers there. And then um, I believe, uh, like you said, some some folks along the along the border who who were a part of that group as well. Um, and then we're also seeing some action from Texas lawmakers. You know, we, we saw, uh, you know, uh, the attorney general's office, uh, George P. Bush, our land commissioner, um, talking about trying to find ways to to fight some of these Biden efforts in court. And then, you know, uh, some some ideas uh, being uh, thrown around uh, by our governor and other lawmakers about things that can be done in the session. Uh, uh, what do you see as kind of a possibility uh, this session to address, uh, uh, you know, what the Biden administration uh, is is looking to do here? Uh, it's it's a little too early to tell, but there, our colleague Aaron Douglas and I um, are starting on a on you know looking at um, there has been some legislation filed um, from Demo Democrats regarding flaring, and you know flaring is widely accepted as problematic for the oil and gas industry after years of maybe denying that fact. Um, you know, the, the Texas Railroad Commission, which is the agency that regulates the oil and gas industry, they are, you know, this last week, they, they, um, they took some action on, on flaring. And, you know, so, so we're kind of curious if that is maybe um, hinting at potential action that the legislature may take on flaring, but, uh, you know, I, I don't know how it, it might get a bit of a frosty reaction um, sure. in the legislature. I don't know that, uh, uh, you know, eliminating flaring is among their priorities this session. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, there's not a lot of kind of, uh, you know, unpopular regulations for the oil industry that the legislature could go about rolling back. You know, we, we've been a, uh, a government uh, and a legislature that's been pretty friendly to, to oil and gas for a while now. It is, of course, a, you know, the, the share of jobs may be shrinking, but it remains an extremely important part of, of our state's economy. Right. And, and what you mentioned with George P. Bush and, and others kind of using their platforms to kind of like announce a pushback against the Biden administration. Uh, you know, people we talked to for this story just really refute that. Um, you know, this one chief executive uh, that that we talked to for the story, you know, he he was talking about how these trends don't start, you know, the, the trends of oil and gas jobs going away, you know, that that didn't start or was caused by the Biden administration. You know, that's kind of it's a it's a push in the in the global free market, um, you know, and it's it's what customers want. And um, that, you know, people are kind of coalescing around focusing on on climate issues to some degree. Right. OK, well, that about does it for this week. Thank you to Kate, Karen and Mitchell um, for joining us. Thank you to our produ producer, Todd. And thank you to our sponsors, the Central Texas Regional Mobility Authority, the Fairmont Austin, Jack Brooks Foundation and Lone Star College. We'll be back next week. Do I have to talk